Toussaint Louverture led the only successful slave revolt in history. Yet his rebellion isn't the only slave uprising that is worth knowing about. Prior to concluding Toussaint's story, we'll take some time to peruse the slave uprising known as the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which reveals that nearly every slave revolt in history presented its fighters with a no-win situation. This event doesn't normally make it onto the standardized lists of a Google search of top slave revolts in history. Additionally, Holocaust victims probably don't automatically come to mind when we envision the term slave. That test is what educators refer to as a word wall assignment, during which a student associates a term to its definition via an image without any labels or words. We do this subconsciously, and it directly contributes to our implicit bias. If I had you close your eyes and imagine the image of a slave, what would you come up with? Included among my students' thoughts would be a farm worker toiling for hours beneath the hot sun. Others might picture a domesticated servant, or even someone being horrifically whipped by their overseer. You might even have positive images associated with the word slavery, such as shackles being broken and thrown down. But chances are that the men and women within each of these images are of African descent. If I asked you to go through the same exercise and imagine a Holocaust victim, the odds are that the man, woman, or child that you are picturing is white. Because of this dichotomy, I want to be clear about my intentions labeling those interned by the Nazis as slaves. The institution of slavery has occurred throughout history across civilizations, and while the Americas' experience of the transatlantic slave trade racialized the practice, there is no single racial claim to the word. In 2012, American President Barack Obama began to use the phrase modern slavery in an attempt to detail the plight of those who were caught up in the sinister practice of human trafficking. Soon after, the United Nations picked up the phrase and normalized it. A number of prominent rights advocates, however, have objected to this terminology. These authors believe that the use of the term modern slavery to describe trafficking downplays the immense suffering that Africans faced during the single greatest trafficking operation in world history. Michael Dontride, who served as director for the organization Anti-Slavery International, tells us that there is real danger that using the term of modern slavery to refer to levels of exploitation which do not meet the legal definition of slavery has the effect of trivializing historical slavery and thereby reducing any sense of responsibility for the countries that profited from slavery, which in turn, he finishes, fits neatly into the agenda of white supremacists. There's a key difference between the two acts. Keep in mind that human trafficking is illegal everywhere, whereas the trans-Saharan and transatlantic slavery were both legal acts underwritten and enhanced by government dollars. 
I don't believe that linguistically connecting individual Holocaust events to the term slavery has the same problem. Historian Lucy Dadowitz wrote what is, in my opinion, the definitive book on the Holocaust with her magnum opus, The War Against the Jews, 1933 to 1945. Throughout the book, she fleshes out the four distinct phases of the Holocaust. These sequential stages are identified for us as discrimination, ghettoization, labor camps, and finally the death camps. At times, the second and third phases merged together, as was the case for the Warsaw Ghetto. Hitler's final solution may have envisioned a world without our Jewish brothers and sisters, but his regime wasn't in an immediate hurry to get rid of them. Instead, they bled them dry as they sought to drain every bit of value that they could extract from their lives, much in the same way that masters worked their slaves to death. The 23rd Psalm is the Holocaust memoir that I happened to use in class. In a chance run-in at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, the author himself convinced me that this was the right book for my students. He argued two things. First, that he experienced the initial phase of the Holocaust at the same age as my freshman students. Secondly, he came up against each and every phase of the Holocaust including surviving two separate death camps. In his life story, George Lucian Saltzman magnificently details each stage of the Holocaust in his effort to help the world never forget the individual horrors that collectively made up the Holocaust. The part of his story that always breaks me down is his description of a job assignment working in a factory making toys. As a teenager, Salzman ran the full gamut of emotions, as this new work assignment wasn't nearly as harsh as his previous ones. Even though it was easy and within a climate-controlled building, he still suffered beneath the yoke of forced labor. His job was to make toys, which due to conscription laws, the Nazis' exclusion of women in the workforce, and their war against minority groups were suddenly in short supply. The irony was not lost on the workers, as the Holocaust survivor contemplates the tragic thought that upon opening their gifts on Christmas Day, the German children would never know that these toys were stained with Jewish tears. This forced labor and lack of freedom fits my own personal definition of slavery. Still, there are those who would disagree with my decision to include a Holocaust uprising within the context of a discussion on slave revolts. Historian Stephen Katz would be accounted among those. He advances two arguments within his work, The Holocaust and New World Slavery, A Comparative History. First, he would tell us that slaves were primarily enslaved to produce economic benefits and thus were given food and housing at a level which would maintain their production. Secondly, Katz argues that as long as they survived the Middle Passage, African slaves tended to have a similar overall life expectancy to that of their enslavers. Holocaust victims, on the other hand, were worked to death without adequate food and housing, 
and had a far shorter lifespan than those who had entrapped them within their system. The Jewish populace of Warsaw and its surrounding areas had chosen to live within the ghetto, a Venetian term for an enclosed area populated by a minority group. After the daily discrimination had become sanctioned, and led by the German-backed Polish government. Keep in mind that hindsight is 2020. Families faced with the decision to relocate to the ghettos would have been fully aware of their people's historical suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. To them, this likely seemed to be a new wave of anti-Semitism. Their history would have taught them that their safest course of action would have been to swim with the current, keep their head down, and wait for it to pass. The families, which intuitively understood that this time was different, would have already missed their opportunity to escape the Nazis' reach. They would have risked their lives by remaining, as Anne Frank did, outside of the designated areas. Beyond the relative safety of the ghettos, the feared special forces of the SS, known as the Einsatzgruppen, hunted down all fugitives, oftentimes displaying their handiwork by discarding the bodies of their victims along the well-worn paths from the ghetto to temple. These small atrocities served to validate the choice of those who decided to move into the ghetto. There was a semblance of normality within the Warsaw Ghetto. Bars existed, granting those who had managed to retain some money a chance to socialize their immense sorrows away. Smuggling performed by children small enough to squeeze through the sewer grates supported a thriving black market. Even historians did the work necessary to hold accountable those who had chosen to commit these crimes against their humanity. Emanuel Riggenblum and Rachel Arbach were among those who led the way to document every piece of evidence for each crime in what must have seemed to have been an endless sea of atrocities. Their illegal records survived, buried within a series of milk cans and metal boxes. The residents were forced into jobs manufacturing items needed for the German war effort. But no amount of pretending life was normal could blind the residents to the fact that life in the ghetto was horrendous. The Imperial War Museum informs us that the cramped size of the district meant that 8 to 10 people were living per room. The Germans deliberately limited the food supplies, causing near starvation levels amongst the population. Malnutrition, overpopulation, and lack of medical care meant that typhus and other communicable diseases ran rampant through the camp. To compound the problems, the entire ghetto only contained five bathhouses, which could only serve 15,000 individuals out of the more than 400,000 residents each month. The combination of these factors meant that between October 1940 in July of 1942, around 20% of the ghetto's population, or 92,000 Jews, lost their lives during this phase of the Holocaust. Finding little to no value in keeping the population contained, 
the Germans and their Polish allies soon moved to liquidate the ghetto. They massed their actions behind the guise of a resettlement operation. And from July to September of 1942, German SS and local police forces carried out mass deportations from Warsaw to the Treblinka death camp, bypassing the work center concentration camps, which carried the lie that work would set the Jews free. By early 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto was down to a mere 70,000 to 80,000 individuals. It was around this point that the Jewish underground organizations of the ZOB and ZZW managed to inform the remaining residents of the truth regarding the resettlement. The U.S.'s Holocaust Museum's encyclopedia does an excellent job of taking us through the courageous actions of the freedom fighters. It teaches us that during a January 1943 deportation to a forced labor camp, a group of fighters armed with pistols fought off the Nazis. While they all died in the firefight, it inspired those remaining to begin to construct underground bunkers to hide those which appeared on the deportation lists. The uprising began in earnest on April 19, 1943. This act of resistance didn't come as a surprise to the Nazis, who just the day before had replaced the leader of the German forces. The new commander, Jürgen Stroop, had vast experience with partisan urban warfare. Beneath his command were 2,000 hardened soldiers, as well as a handful of planes and tanks. The remainder of the story is horrific, as is nearly all Holocaust history. But even the tragedy results in lessons about the ability and will that we humans have to live. We all like to imagine that we would be able to heroically save the day against all odds. But as the Mighty Mighty Boston's famously noted, I'm not a coward, I've just never been tested. These SS officers were the top-of-the-line special forces of the militant Germans. They had trained for years to carry out actions that are unfathomable to the rest of us, acts that can break our minds, body, and souls. Think about the levels of PTSD that the soldiers who are forced to kill to protect go through. These SS officers were veteran killing machines. Going up against them required the highest levels of courage. But often, courage alone is not enough. But it is something. Facing near certain death, either via a forced labor camp or a train ride that ended at Auschwitz or Treblinka, the citizens of the Warsaw Ghetto rose up as one. On the first day of the fighting, the Jewish resistance groups held off Stroop's reinforced regiments. Despite having just a small collection of smuggled guns and rifles, many of which were classified as antiques, the German tanks and soldiers were forced to retreat and collect themselves. The historian Riegelblum noted that it seems to me that people will no longer go to the slaughter like lambs. 
They want the enemy to pay dearly for their lives. They'll fling themselves at them with knives, staves, coal, gas. They'll not allow themselves to be seized in the street, for they know that work camp means death these days. Upon being repelled, they sent for reinforcements. Yet still, as though the Jewish residents were the Spartan 300 of lore, they held off the Germans for a second day, and then another. But this isn't a story of a successful uprising. The only one of those belongs to the Haitian leader who bears this episode's name. Faced with an unbending resistance that knew it had nothing to lose, the Germans altered their tactics to burn the entire enclosed ghetto to the ground. In a massacre that would have made Genghis Khan proud, the SS officers systematically lit the outer buildings and then fanned the flames towards the city center. As the fires advanced from all directions, the Nazis marched in lockstep with the inferno. Our historian, who heroically documented the events for us, was caught within the blaze along with the entirety of the Jewish quarter. A mere 40 children, each being small enough to escape through the sewers, are believed to have survived the slaughter. The Warsaw Uprising was an absolute tragedy, but it also is a show of spirit, a willingness to defy someone else's imposition of their idea of fate upon you. It showed that even against the greatest odds, one could resist. The bravery of those men, women, and children are unmatched in the annals of history. But unfortunately, there were no scenarios where the outcome would have been reversed. Sometimes your enemy just has too much power. Sometimes the bad guys win, leaving the heroes of the story as mere martyrs on the pages of our history books. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series regards Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution. Episode number four, His Life as a Martyr. Toussaint Louverture had experienced more than a lifetime in his 50 years. The man had been born a slave to the French colony that would eventually become the nation of Haiti. He had been freed, but was soon forced to return to his former master's plantation in order to make amends for a failed business venture which saw him purchase his own slaves, one of whom would go on to become the first president of Haiti. He had initiated the 1791 island-wide slave revolt out of a concern that his still-enslaved family might be forcibly split up. After announcing his role as rebel leader, he merged his cause with the Spanish soldiers that shared the island. Only after they showed a hint of mistrust, Louvatore switched sides again, 
this time allying himself with forces tied to a white commissioner who had gone on to free all of Haiti's slaves without first seeking permission from Paris. After reconquering the lands that he had previously taken for Spain, he became the leading political figure for the black portion of the island's populace. From there, he systematically removed the men that were empowered over him, leaving his as the lone voice of influence. He skillfully worked back channels to ensure that Haiti's economy continued to receive necessary trade from the Americas and England. Despite the fact that his land's colonial master was in the midst of an economic war with the two Anglo powers. In short, he had managed to go from a slave on the Breda plantation to the overlord of colonial Haiti. But as we know by now, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Soon, the man who had begun a rebellion on behalf of his family began to fall beneath the temptations of absolute authority. His fall began by seeking the favor of women outside the bounds of his marriage. His affairs were not just sins of lust, as he specifically targeted for his mistresses the white wives of former slave owners. Historian Philippe Girard, one of our main sources for this series, tells us that revenge was at the forefront of his thoughts, noting that although he never spoke on it, his own daughter's biracial baby served as a reminder of a time when the masters had taken whatever they wanted without any concern for what was morally right. Louvator's downfall came in part from the fact that he had told too many lies to too many individuals. Aesop, himself a slave of the Greek system, is known as the father of the fable. His more than 4,000 short stories survive to this day as a way to impart simple morals. One of my favorite fables, entitled The Monkey and the Dolphin, begins with the familiar phrase of It happened once upon a time, before letting us imagine that a certain Greek ship bound for Athens was wrecked off the coast close to Price, the port of Athens. Had it not been for the dolphins, who at that time were very friendly towards mankind and especially towards Athenians, all would have perished. But the dolphins took the shipwrecked people on their backs and swam them to shore. Now it was custom among the Greeks to take their pet monkeys and dogs with them whenever they went on a voyage. So when one of the dolphins saw a monkey struggling in the water, he thought it was a man, and made the monkey climb up on his back. Then off he swam with him towards the shore. The monkey sat up, grave and dignified on the dolphin's back. You are a citizen of illustrious Athens, are you not? asked the dolphin politely. Yes, answered the monkey proudly. My family is one of the noblest in the city. Indeed, said the dolphin. Then of course you often visit Pyrrhus. Yes, yes, replied the monkey. Indeed I do. I am with him constantly. Pyrrhus is my very best friend. This answer took the dolphin by surprise and turning his head, he now saw what it was he was carrying. 
Without much ado, he dived and left the foolish monkey to take care of himself while he swam off in search of some human being to save. The moral of the story is that one falsehood leads to another. Gerard describes Louvator's ability to rule by identifying the man as a master of the gray area and the white lie, as he pursued multiple goals simultaneously and had to make morally ambiguous compromises to achieve them all. His penchant for falsehoods continued after he had achieved power, as he identified himself as a habitual liar telling confidants that if his left arm ever became aware of what his right arm was doing, then he'd have it chopped off. We will examine a number of his inaccurate statements, while keeping in mind George Costanza's fictional advice that it isn't a lie if you believe it. Toussaint's first big lie that he told to the world was that Haiti had eradicated slavery. We have previously described how awful workers had it within the sugar cultivation industry. Slavery apologists had long argued that given a choice, absolutely no one would ever choose to work within that industry. The capitalist answer to such a problem is to pay the workers more. But no sugar plantation could hope to turn a profit without achieving economies of scale. An impossibility without slavery. Mitchell Hilliard Dahl Albrachtrol found in 1775 that each Haitian slave produced 600 to 1800 colonial livres more than it cost to free them. That resulted in an 8 to 10% return on investment. That is in line with the return on investment expectation for stock market investors throughout the 20th century. No matter how beloved a product is, producers won't continue to make it if it isn't profitable. Take for instance the esteemed banana. Bad news for you banana enthusiasts, it's going extinct. 99% of all bananas cultivated are of a specific variety, known as the Cavendish. Monoculturalists chose to elevate this banana at the expense of others because it was the most profitable. Soon, other versions of the naturally occurring fruit vanished. But no one cared, because we still had the banana that we have grown to love and trust. Unfortunately, the Cavendish is susceptible to a number of diseases, including a fungus that each Cavendish offspring is born with. The disease has proven to be an irreversible ticking time bomb. Through herbicides and pesticides, farmers are able to prolong the plant's life in order to narrowly maintain profitability. But as the disease grows resistant to our chemicals, farmers will inevitably be faced with a choice. Either raise the price of bananas, or let the plant die so that they can utilize their land for a new, more profitable cash crop. The issue is even more acute for banana planters in Africa, as a new threat lovingly referred to by diseaseologists as tropical disease number four has emerged. CNN informs us 
that a single clamp of contaminated dirt is enough to spread TD4 like wildfire. Once infected, the banana plant begins to suffocate, unable to pick up water necessary for its survival. George Mahuku, a plant pathologist, is trying to turn the tide in the efforts to save the industry. But it is costly, as CNN notes that one plantation has already lost $7.5 million in economic value after a total of 230,000 plants were destroyed. For the Nampula province, the absence of the banana would ripple throughout the economy, as they are critical for African food security and income generation for more than 100 million people. Likewise, the sugar industry was the lifeblood of Haiti's economy, and it was faced with a similar existential crisis. In 1789, the island produced 138 million pounds of sugar. Six years later, in 1795, it had declined to a mere 1.6 million pounds. Coffee production declined by a staggering 97.4%. Similarly, cotton dropped by 99%, and indigo went from 958,628 pounds to just 4,793. It wasn't disease that destroyed Haiti's economic engine, but rather a desire to express freedom through economic choices. Having never previously had a choice, Haiti's free slaves decided that they weren't willing to go back to their former lives, even if they were getting paid for their labor. There were no other alternative avenues for making a living, but the freedmen found that they were okay with that, deciding instead to live out their remaining days as subsistence farmers on small plots of land that had been clawed away from the owners during the revolution. The situation was so dire that Gerard notes that Louvatore did not so much as seize power as inherit an economic wasteland. Toussaint ensured that workers did get paid for their labor, but it wasn't at a high enough rate to make workers abandon their individual plots of land. Therefore, his regime could never ensure the profitability of sugar. More so than for the good of the island, his attempts to restore the plantation system proved personal for Toussaint, whose family had managed to lay claim to 31 different plantations over the course of the war. Faced with extreme labor shortages, he first attempted to appeal to their national pride, something that isn't exactly a thing for someone who was forcibly trafficked to a foreign land. He then spoke to them personally, telling them that work is necessary, it is a virtue. He implored them to disprove the enemies of liberty who think that blacks are not ready to be free, by 1801, his speeches had turned from motivation to shaming tactics, as he implored those assembled to shun idleness. It is the mother of all vices. 
Louvator wasn't wired like other slaves, and thus didn't fully comprehend their unwillingness to restore Haiti's place in the world. After all, he had established relations with whites that had led to his freedom. He then used that freedom to buy up a coffee plantation and its workers. He was an entrepreneur, one who desired to accumulate as much wealth and power as he could. Unable to walk in the shoes of those that he governed resulted in him outlawing voodoo, which he claimed breeds disorder and idleness. The decision only turned the people further against their Catholic leader. Still unable to motivate them, free workers were literally forced back into the fields by Toussaint's soldiers. Historian Jeremy Popkin, our other main source, details Louvator's vision of a militarized machine for agricultural production in which runaway workers were regularly shot as deserters. Soon, women far outnumbered men in the fields, but Gerard tells us that equal work did not bring equal pay, for when the plantation's crop was distributed, as salary, female field hands received two-thirds of the share their male counterparts got. Women were also denied the higher-paying jobs, such as sugar refiner and foreman. Soon, the one-year requirement of labor turned to three, before then becoming a life sentence. This legal obligation to remain beneath your employer's yoke essentially turned them into serfs, which is really just a nice way of saying slave. Rebellion once stoked is hard to put out. An African-born freedman who formed the vast majority of the plantation workforce began to itch their nagging suspicion that those in government had hijacked the slave revolt for their own purposes. In short, they had used them as a stepping stone for their own enrichment. A cycle of violence began anew, and when Toussaint rushed to calm things down, they took the opportunity to finish him off wounding him in the leg with a silver bullet. His response to the legitimate concerns of his people was to proclaim that stealing plantation produce, a necessity for the worker's survival, was now punishable with death. That sanction happened to be far worse than had been previously instituted by the Black Coats. The incident provided a moment of clarity for the workers. Toussaint may have once been one of them, and while he continued to look like them, he was no longer one of them. The army was called in to crush a worker uprising in 1800, and another in 1801. More than 6,000 cultivators were put to death for actions that were similar to those that Toussaint had previously led. His own nephew, General Moyes, balked at the requirement to put to death the agitated workers, stating that he was unwilling to be the executioner of my color. He was subsequently court-martialed and shot for his speaking into existence his moral objection. 
Soon, there weren't enough workers on the island to sustain the restarted plantations. One Frenchman wrote that the revolution was a greedy reaper, and the island's population had dropped by one-third from its pre-revolution high. In search of a solution, Toussaint initiated secret meetings with the British in an attempt to supplement his island's workforce by purchasing a significant number of African slaves. The imported laborers would be quote-unquote freed upon arrival, but then forced into labor on the plantations in an attempt to jumpstart the economy. He repeated his efforts to restart the importation of slavery in 1800 after clearing Santo Domingo of all remaining Spaniards. His message to those which the Spanish had enslaved was contradictory, as he told Dominican slaves that they would enjoy their liberty and receive a fourth of the crop as salary, just like the cultivators of Haiti. But he immediately insisted that they work, even more than before, that they remain obedient, and that they do their duty with diligence, being fully determined to punish severely those who do not. Ultimately, history has to judge the statement that Toussaint Louverture ended slavery in Haiti as false. Benjamin Franklin believed that half a truth is often a great lie. The second big lie that Louvator espoused was that his policies were working. In 1802, Toussaint declared that cultivation and commerce were flourishing, and the island had reached a degree of splendor never seen before. But he was playing a double game. His insistence in maintaining a massive army meant that the government's coffers regularly ran dry. Military officials report that they were paid too little and far too late. Meanwhile, a large portion of the state's funds went directly into the pockets of the Louvatore family. To be clear, there were successes as coffee production had reached three-fifths of its pre-revolutionary levels. However, he couldn't figure out how to have the same effect on sugar. His governing style was that of a micromanager, which rarely works on a country-wide scale. Gerard informs us that he personally decided on all matters in the colony, no matter how trivial. To accommodate the workload, he employed multiple secretaries at once. He was also paranoid and had each secretary write a portion of his most sensitive letters which he then assembled in private like an alchemist synthesizing a dangerous chemical compound. Had Toussaint's policies actually worked, Napoleon would have likely ignored his ambitions and repeated transgressions against France. After all, it's easy to sweep any controversy under the rug if the money continues to flow. American author Eric Hoffer warns that we lie loudest when we lie to ourselves. 
Louvator's third big lie was one that he personally fell for, for he believed he was in charge. By 1801, the island's de facto leader had grown bold enough to notify Napoleon Bonaparte via letter that he had completed the absorption of the Dominican Republic, despite orders from France which had expressly forbidden the action. Gerard informs us that Toussaint boasted in the letter that black troops had shown during the invasion that they are capable of the greatest things. Before continuing with the line, I hope that, better disciplined, they will be able in the future to hold their own against European troops. The historian points out that the subtext was clear, as Toussaint was really writing that I may have disobeyed you, but if you ever try to overthrow me, I will stand my ground. It was a huge gamble. But for the moment, Napoleon remained bogged down in his never-ending feud with England, and had thus far in his reign shown little interest in France's America's project. Still, the French ruler wasn't one to be challenged. After all, the man does have an entire complex about not backing down from a fight named after him. Napoleon soon announced that France's colonies would henceforth be governed by special laws. He was frustratingly vague on whether this meant that slavery could be reintroduced to the island. Although Louvator himself had been working towards reinventing a system of indentured servitude, he sought to maintain full control over whom the state identified as a slave. Otherwise, his loyalists could once again be swept up by the insidious, peculiar institution. Having witnessed a pattern of disturbing unilateral actions, Napoleon decided to nullify Toussaint's unauthorized capturing of the Dominican Republic. But he didn't yet take the feud further, as the emperor's advisors informed him that Louvator was the only man capable of governing the island portraying Toussaint as a necessary evil. Initially swayed by those aides, the French emperor drafted a letter offering Louvator a promotion and an offer of close cooperation regarding a program of French military expansion into the Caribbean. But that letter never left the shores of Europe, as Toussaint continued to poke the French bear. Reacting to Napoleon's decision to govern via special laws, he began working on a new Haitian constitution, one that would make it impossible to legally restore slavery on the island. The document also enshrined into law the authority of the Catholic Church, as well as laying the groundwork so that Louvator could reign as an authoritarian. The document displays for us his vision for an independent Haiti, one which denied free speech and only allowed him the ability to initiate legislation. In short, it would have been a de facto military dictatorship complete with a lifetime appointment for their sitting governor. Napoleon hadn't even yet laid claim to that level of power in France. 
Girard tells us that Louvatore's constitution was viewed as a declaration of independence by all those who read it. America's ambassador was one of those who received a copy. After reading it, he proclaimed that Louvatore was now in open revolt against Spain. But Toussaint didn't have all of his chickens in a row. Crucially, he had forgotten about his children, who were residing in Paris while they obtained a European elite education. The boys soon became hostages, used to nudge their father back towards the path of good behavior. While the children were allowed to continue their studies, they were forbidden from returning home. The letter sent to Toussaint wasn't drenching in nuance, as they informed the would-be dictator that as long as you second the views of the government in Haiti, we will be pleased to fulfill your wishes regarding your children. The correspondence trailed off with a menacing, if not, dot, dot, dot. From this point forward, all of his son's correspondences reek of having been heavily influenced by their captors as their content regularly dwelt on the perceived shortcomings of their father's policies. Largely because of this situation, Louvatore never actually declared independence from France. Unable to properly secede, he took out his frustrations on his own people by assigning military tribunals to deal with all thefts. His newly created code of laws assigned the death penalty to a wide range of crimes, including rape, conspiracy, arson, as well as horse theft. Seeking to gain an edge on his perceived overseas opponent, the Black Napoleon, as Toussaint had styled himself, subscribed to every newspaper in Paris and took up the practice of reading his mail while in the bath after hearing that that was how Bonaparte managed his own oversized workload. Toussaint's penchant for work soon isolated him from even those in his inner circle. His ego, which was a weakness for him, soon cut him off from the real world. He abruptly ended relations with the United States after Thomas Jefferson, a noted slave owner, ascended to the Oval Office. He seethed at the fact that Napoleon would ignore his request to write him back. He began to fall for the exaggerations inherent to his own personality cult, which included his name adorning a street, town, and even a province. Gerard notes that men who have no equal are condemned to live a lonely life. The problem was that Toussaint believed he deserved more than anyone was willing to give him. Although Napoleon, who was known to harbor prejudice against Toussaint's race, was willing to treat Toussaint as something close to an equal, he wasn't willing to go beyond leading Toussaint to complain that if I were white, I would only receive praise, but I actually deserve even more as a black man who has achieved so much. He would have been better off if he had embodied Thomas Jefferson's advice that nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. 
Nothing on earth can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. Louis de Fay had been a key voice in the French Parliament's decision-making to eradicate slavery throughout the empire. Now he rose again to speak, lamenting that for a long time we have been too liberal and too tolerant with the blacks and the men of color. With Haiti suddenly devoid of allies in Paris, Napoleon finally acted. In October of 1801, Paris sent Victory Leclerc to the island. Popkin explains the nature of the expedition, writing that Leclerc was told to proceed in three phases. First, he was to begin by issuing reassurances to the population and negotiating with Toussaint Louverture, promising him anything he wanted in order to take possession of the strongholds and to get ourselves into the country. Once this was accomplished, however, Leclerc was to become more demanding. He would order Louverture to give up his authority, and he would separate the black general from his supporters by confirming them in their military positions. Placed under Leclerc's control, the black army would then be used alongside the white troops to crush rebellious movements in the countryside. As soon as this was done, the historian relays, Leclerc was to proceed to the third and final phase of his mission. Not only Louvatore, but the other black generals, particularly Jean-Jacques Dessalines, were to be arrested. If they were captured carrying arms, they were to be shot like rebels. Any man of color that had served as officers in Louvatore's army or officials in his government were to be sent to France, and the black population was to be completely disarmed. You likely already think that this double cross is horrific, but stay with me. Hopkins continues by informing us that white women who had violated European notions about racial hierarchy by having sexual relations with blacks were also to be deported. Toussaint's lies had finally caught up to him, but it would take three months for Leclerc to reach the shores of the Caribbean, during which time our black Napoleon doubled down on the oppression of his people, individuals whom he would need to call upon in the coming fight. He put down a rebellion that was forming in the north. The insurgents had finally uncovered Toussaint's attempts at purchasing slaves from Jamaica. The minor rebellion was a dramatic one, as those who rose up in opposition walked holding chains in protest of Louvatore's reinstatement of the chain gang as a punishment. They proclaimed that the next step was inevitably the restoration of their enslavement before chanting their unifying slogan of death to all white people. In a matter of days, they had succeeded in murdering more than 300 planters. The incident put Haiti's governor in a foul mood, and upon their capture, he chained the rebel leadership together to be torn apart by grape shot from cannons. These small round balls that were loosely tied together exploded out of the cannons, tearing the defenseless victims apart. 
a boat that bore the news that would change the trajectory of the career of the Black Napoleon arrived in December of 1801. Against all odds, France and England had come to a peace agreement. Haiti was directly affected by the agreement in two ways. First, Great Britain broke off their prior negotiations regarding the sale of Jamaican slaves. This sunk all hope that Toussaint had to be able to alter the island's economic trajectory. The British had previously favored Haiti's governor in large part because it presented an economic win, but they also felt that it was a way to needle their true enemy in Paris. 10 Downing Street informed their governor of Jamaica that the time for negotiations were at an end, as Toussaint's black empire is one amongst many evils that have grown out of the war, and it is by no means our interest to prevent its annihilation. The second effect of the secession of hostilities was that France was now free to send soldiers across the Atlantic. Leclerc and a small army was well on his way. Girard details the man's fumbling reactions for us, writing that Louvator needed allies, but he could find none. He recruited civilians to supplement his professional army, but many refused to serve. He attempted to make amends with the formerly free population, but they could not forgive him for the massacres during the uprisings. He increased his arms purchases from U.S. merchants before departing for Santo Domingo, the expected landing point for the invasion fleet. He assumed the French would not arrive for months, leaving him plenty of time to fortify the island. But he couldn't have been more wrong, as the first ships were spotted within a week of his arrival. His first recorded response was within a letter to his godfather, a man who would amazingly survive until the age of 105. The letter was short and to the point, containing the line, Pray God for me, we shall perish, all of France has come to Haiti. He wasn't half wrong, as Napoleon had left nothing to chance by sending two-thirds of the entire French fleet. Toussaint's own boys were included on the ships, but Leclerc violated his instructions and chose not to let them go ashore in order to negotiate their father's surrender. Realizing that his hopes to fortify the coast were an impossibility, he rushed back to his capital at Cap, but the French fleet beat him there. Once again, lacking the opportunity to fortify the city, he did the next best thing by burning it to the ground, creating a firebreak between the two forces. His reaction made it clear that he knew he was in trouble. From here, he hoped that the island's diseases would do their worst to the newly arrived Europeans. He chillingly instructed Dessalines that all major towns must burn. Don't forget that until the rainy season, yellow fever rids us of our enemies, 
Our only resources are destruction and fire. Because Louvatour had never formally declared independence, both sides fought in uniforms emblazoned with the French tricolor flags. Leclerc proceeded with Napoleon's battle plan and offered Toussaint immense riches if he were to step down gracefully. At this point, the Frenchman allowed his opponent's sons to reunite with their father. But the reunion wasn't a happy occasion, as the two boys were split on whether their father was a heroic rebel or a villainous traitor to the motherland of France. Gerard notes that his family, like his colony, was torn in half. When the negotiation ceased to bear fruit, Leclerc declared Toussaint Louvatore an outlaw, annulled all of his land holdings, and set out an order granting immunity to any man, woman, or child that murdered him. The facade that had been the Black Napoleon was destroyed. The fighting that ensued involved brutal hand-to-hand combat. Both Louvatore and Leclerc were seriously wounded in the fighting. Once again, beneath the mantle of the Black Spartacus, Toussaint tried to draw out the war, knowing that disease would ravage his enemy if he could just keep the fighting going. For once, however, time wasn't on his side, as desertions quickly mounted, cascading through his ranks. In fact, he was nearly killed by some of those deserters in a firefight at Port de Pax. Four months into the fighting, both sides were utterly exhausted. Leclerc had lost 10,000 to Louvatore 6,000, but the French had begun with far more troops. And on April 29th, Toussaint was forced to enter into a ceasefire. Seeking to lull his opponent into a false sense of security, Leclerc let him step down from governor and return to his estate. But Louvatore's actions show that the man never intended to go quietly into the night. He refused to help Leclerc oversee the return of the workers to the fields. Furthermore, he insisted that his black generals be reincorporated into the French army. The rationale for the move was that it would allow his loyalists to keep a close eye on Leclerc's movements. Louvatore must have felt that his plans were working when a yellow fever epidemic hit the island on April 20th, 1802. He recorded his thoughts for posterity's sake, writing that Providence is finally coming to rescue me. As it always had, the disease struck the newcomers far worse than the island's permanent inhabitants. By May 8th, Leclerc reported losses of 50 men a day. Of the 35,000 French soldiers that had arrived beneath him, 15,000 would fall to yellow fever, while 3,000 succumbed to other illnesses. The black Spartacus calculated that he could renew hostilities as early as the fall. But hope, according to Aristotle, is just a waking dream. 
one that he was startled awake from when General Jean-Jacques Dessalines crossed battle lines to inform Leclerc that his former master was indeed playing a double game. The accusation led to Louvator's arrest in early June as he was lulled into a trap under the belief that one of his sons had gotten into a skirmish with some soldiers. After handing over his sword, he was taken to the frigate La Creole. Shocked at falling so far so fast, Toussaint finally discovered his words upon boarding the ship, informing the captain that they had just struck down the Tree of Black Liberty. Gerard informs us that his family was arrested next, and aside from his niece, not one of Louvator's relatives ever set foot in Haiti again. The ship reached the French military port of Brest in July. Wanting to avoid the spectacle of a public trial, Napoleon locked him up and threw away the key. Louvator was anxious, but hoped to have the opportunity to justify his actions to Napoleon. But he was never going to be given the chance. They took him to the Fort de Jacques, a medieval castle repurposed as a prison located deep within the Jura Mountains along the French-Swiss border. Gerard describes Louvator's last abode for us, writing that it was a forbidding place, bitterly cold in the winter months. And historian John Bigelow recently visited the still-standing castle and observed that of all the dreadful shapes which man's inhumanity to man has ever taken, there are few which feed the imagination with more fearful visions of misery and despair than were reflected from this dark, impenetrable mirror framed 500 feet deep in granite. When I considered that all the enormities of which the structure had been the occasion in the theater were perpetuated in the quest of war, in all ages and countries the consecrated emblem of truth, I was struck for the thousandth time with the resemblance which runs through all the forms of human perseverity. Gerard takes us through the Haitian's experience, writing that Louvator was led up a flight of stairs, through a gate, another courtyard, another gate, another courtyard, and more gates still. His journey finally ended deep in the fort's innards. His cell was narrow, low, and dark. I thought I was entering an underground tunnel, his servant noted with horror. They only had two openings to the outside world. The first was the cell's door, whose three bolts only the prison director could unlock. The second was the cell's window, which was obstructed by iron bars, bricks, and storm shutters to prevent an escape. It was almost pitch dark, even in the daytime. Not even as a slave had Louvator's freedom been so restricted. Isn't it like burying a man alive, he wondered? He spent his time behind bars trying to salvage his fate. 
he labored diligently to write a 6,000-word petition to the emperor that he believed defended his actions. The document is oftentimes mistaken for Louvatore's autobiography, but if that were his intention, it would have to be found lacking, as he only wrote one sentence in regards to his incredible pre-revolutionary life. The emperor never opted to read the document. Gerard informs us that Napoleon did not even honor Louvatore with his hatred, as he instead buried him under his indifference. Toussaint patiently waited in his cell beneath the mountain for his words to be read. One of the fortress's guards noted that the prisoner spent the bulk of his days by his small window, his head resting on his hand against the iron grating, absorbed by a dark melancholy. He was a proud man, but sweet as a lamb. There was only silence to console him at the moment of his death. Freezing within the coldest region of France, he kept a raging fire going at all times in his cell. But one morning, his guard arrived to find his deceased body sitting silent and perfectly still in his chair beside the fire. He had survived his imprisonment a mere eight months. Somewhat tragically, the intervening months proved Haiti's revolutionary leader correct. Leclerc succumbed to yellow fever one day after the Catholic holiday of the Day of the Dead. Ironically, Toussaint took his name from that holiday, which in English meant All Saints' Day. Napoleon and England soon resumed their eternal conflict, and the French were unable to reinforce Leclerc's surviving men. Thus, they spent months starving in Haiti's coastal cities while being besieged land and sea by British and rebel forces. The failure of the Leclerc expedition resulted in Napoleon giving up on his hegemonic dream in the Americas, resulting in the sale of the Louisiana Purchase to Thomas Jefferson. The American president was in such disbelief at the French offer that he had to double-check if it was even constitutional for the office of the presidency to accept the deal. His conclusion was that it wasn't, but proceeded to do it anyways as it was just too good to pass up. Historians Robert Wright and David Cowan note that the real estate deal of the millennium meant that overnight the upstart nation acquired land physically larger than France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Holland, Switzerland, and the British Isles. Combined. As Leclerc's forces disintegrated, Dessalines took the fight to the French, eventually emerging victorious and daring to tread where Toussaint had been unwilling. He proved to be far less moderate in his governing style. For example, his speech announcing the nation's independence included the memorable line of independence or death. Let these sacred words unite us. Ananthema to the French name, eternal hatred to France, that is our cry. He chose Louis Bosran Tonneray 
to write the Declaration of Independence after the French educated man had supposedly declared that to draw up the act of independence, we need the skin of a white man for parchment, his skull for an inkwell, his blood for ink, and a bayonet for a pen. Along with the official announcement, Dessalines changed the nation's name to Haiti, which served as a throwback to the island's original Taino residence. The word means mountainous island. Dessalines' rule only increased the hostility towards their former masters. The pent-up outrage erupted in 1804 as the new government decreed that most of the white people ought to be put to death for past crimes. Three to five thousand were executed over the span of weeks. Gerard tells us that under Dessalines' definition of citizenship, to be Haitian was to be black. This strongly suggests that parts of Louvatore's historical legacy was to be that of a Jomo Kenyatta or Nelson Mandela figure, men who had every reason to seek revenge against the colony's elites, but who instead chose to create a functioning country that worked for all of the nation's citizens. Dessalines, on the other hand, turned the newly minted Haiti into a pariah state. It remained so for more than two centuries after Toussaint had led an uprising for the purpose of maintaining his family's unity. In 1991, Venezuela, something of a pariah state itself, explained their reluctance at involving itself more within Haiti's domestic affairs by having its ambassador articulate that it is the only black country in Latin America before then going on to explain that it was very foreign to our own region. No one can say for certain whether or not Haiti would be better off today if Louvatore had managed to stay on the good side of Napoleon. But we know that he was obsessed with the restoration of the sugar plantation industry on the island. Dessalines and his successors went the opposite direction, dismantling the system and giving in to their people's desire to live out the remainder of their days primarily as subsistence farmers. The island's surrender meant that slavery increased in other parts of the Caribbean as a result of the Haitian Revolution, as slaves were swiftly imported to Cuba and other nations to fulfill the demand in sugar left in the wake. NPR tells us that Thomas Jefferson viewed Haiti as a threat to the existing world order and thus worked overtime to isolate the new nation so that it couldn't serve as inspiration for slave revolts within the United States. America wouldn't officially recognize the existence of its neighbor until 1862, a whole 60 years after Toussaint Louverture's death. Without funds or allies, Haiti struggled. The international community clenched their collective fist rather than extending their hand. The result was what scholar Marlene Doubt refers to as the greatest heist in history. 20 years after they had declared their independence, the French returned to the island, ringing it with gunboats. 
In exchange for the freedom that they had enjoyed for the past 20 years, Charles X, the French king, demanded 150 million francs as reparations for the loss of their property, by which, of course, they meant their slaves. NPR reminds us that that sum was ten times the amount that the U.S. had paid France for the Louisiana Purchase, which had doubled the size of their nation. Haiti was forced to cave to the demands in order to secure its independence. The amount was too much for the young nation, and so it had to take out loans with hefty interest rates from a French bank. Over the next century, Haiti paid French slaveholders and their descendants the equivalent of between 20 and 30 billion in today's dollars. It took Haiti 122 years to pay it off, severely damaging the newly independent country's ability to prosper. Despite this horrific start, Haiti managed to become a beacon of hope for enslaved people of African descent in the Americas. But for those still trapped within the peculiar institution, Louvatore's system became the model for the unfair emancipation transition period. Gerard writes, as abolition spread from the middle to the end of the 19th century, European empires faced a problem familiar to Haitian leaders. How to satisfy their labor needs in a post-emancipation society. They often settled on a solution that Louvatore would have recognized. In the British and Spanish Caribbean, Formal emancipation was followed by a transition period during which freedmen were forced to remain on their plantations. Within the British and French Caribbean, Indian and Chinese indentured servants were soon imported. Even in the US and Brazil, where slavery was abolished outright without a transition period, and where massive European immigration alleviated labor shortages, former slaves continued to toil on their master's land under semi-free systems like sharecropping, governed by the passage of Jim Crow laws. All too often, freed did not necessarily mean free. In Haiti, Louvatore's legacy was quickly buried by the new ruling junta. To them, he became a mere transitional figure, as Dessalines' personality cult severed the two men's lengthy history. Outside of Haiti, on the other hand, Toussaint achieved immortality. The American abolitionist John Brown studied Louvatore's tactics while preparing his ineffective raid on Harper's Ferry. The people of Benin, where Louvatore's Alada ancestors resided in, have honored him with a prominent statue. New York City even recently named a street in his honor. This comes as he has taken on a third persona, that of a black Washington, the father of a free nation. Still, knowledge about this critical piece of Western history remains far too inaccessible. 
Hollywood A-lister, who, if you've watched the Lethal Weapon series, perhaps might be too old for this bleep, attempted to change that for two decades. The last meeting that he had on the subject of a Louvatore-centered Hollywood blockbuster included a producer incredibly stating that his studio was passing due to the fact that the story of Toussaint Louvatore had, quote, no white heroes. Historian Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwall reveals that Glover wasn't alone in his efforts of bringing the black Spartacus to the silver screen, as Harry Belafonte, William Marshall, Ellen Holly, and Sidney Portier were all turned down. Portier's failure is quite remarkable, as he happened to have been the first African-American to have ever won a Best Actor Oscar. In a tiny victory, Black Panther 2 decided to drop the name of Toussaint on the Haitian-born successor to T'Challa. But few likely picked up the reference in the Marvel movie Stinger. Seppenwall informs us that the challenge of getting producers to fund a film on Haiti's revolution has been exacerbated by the fact this event doesn't fit into the kinds of black history storylines the studios prefer. Unlike the fictional plot of Django Unchained, the Haitian Revolution was planned by African-descended peoples without help from a white hero. Unlike the insurrection led by Nat Turner, presented in Nate Parker's brilliant film The Birth of a Nation, Haitians overthrew their oppressors and force slavery's end. And that is how I would like to remember Toussaint Louverture. The man, like all of our heroes, wasn't perfect, but he did succeed. Far too often, humans are forced into no-win situations. Every once in a while, they're able to cheat the system and achieve victory. This often comes at great cost to themselves. In Toussaint's case, it came with the loss of his life and legacy. Slave revolts have happened for as long as humans have walked this earth, but only one managed to succeed. That success is legacy enough for the man known by the monikers of the Black Spartacus, the Black Napoleon, and the Black Washington. But now that you know the man's story, I hope you will join me in not qualifying his accomplishments by placing his race in front of it. For he was a man who led his people to freedom, fought to a standstill with his enemies, and served as the father of a country. With that as a legacy, it ought to be enough to know the name of Toussaint Louverture. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.